The announcements were okay. Mark, thanks. And then uh, we got to the video promo. Did you feel the... Didn't feel like Christmas there for a minute, did it? You know, yeah. You guys find that, uh, whether it's Christmas or not, uh, when you focus on stuff, uh, sin issues, life issues, life rolls along, and you come to church on a Sunday morning, and for a brief moment you focus on something that sounds profound and important, and we know that we're supposed to be about that, but you get back into the flow of life, and somehow all that gets left behind, and all the things we have going on, and we want to reverse that, right? Things like the pure video series, uh, that's where a lot of us live, right? In the church, the statistics are undeniable, all the surveys say the same thing. So plugging into something like that around the Christmas season or otherwise is a good thing. So, uh, and with that, we're going to switch gears here dramatically. So, uh, yeah, how do you like that? That um, our granddaughter, we bought a a set, a tin tea set just like that for our granddaughter Annalise a few years ago. And she used it and it got used and abused and lost and so last time she was here, visited us not long ago, she was not collecting, but she was saving up her money to buy a new one. So we contributed to that fund, and she had purchased a new one, and we, she shared that with us the last video session. We chatted with her. Um, when she was here, she would come up. We have partial tea sets at our house. You know, we have toys from 30-plus years ago, you know, for the girls that never grow up or for the grandkids that come after them. So she was playing tea with us this last time she was here. So she would ask us what, what flavor we wanted. She had a variety of flavors. You'd tell her which one you wanted. She'd go over to her corner. She'd mix up her tea. She'd come back, pour you your little cup, you know, sip it. It was, it was great. She was having a great time, and so were we. Now, you know, the thing about these tin tea sets uh, for kids is they're, they're sort of a knockoff on something else, aren't they? The reason we have... Uh, tin tea sets like that is because there are real tea sets for grown-ups, aren't there? There are porcelain or china high-end tea sets, and the little girl playing with a tin tea set is, in fact, sort of looking forward to an adult status in which she takes up a different kind of role herself, excuse me, that uses things like the very fine china tea set or the porcelain tea set. One thing leads to another. One is sort of a microcosm or a childish version of something else, a grown-up version of something else. You know, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 13 in very different context in which it talks about spiritual gifts and, and where all those things go, where they end. And at the end of a passage on spiritual gifts, uh, the Apostle Paul says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. That is, these spiritual gifts we have in the moment, they're partial. They only last for a season. He said, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he says this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So the element of Annalisa's life, that tin tea set, it's appropriate now. This is childhood, she learns it, she plays with it, but it prepares her for an adult version of life. As we get into the last message in the Waiting the King series this morning, We're going to talk about King David because this is where the study has been leading us. We'll qualify this here in just a minute. But we want to remember that when we're looking at these Old Testament stories, none of those stories, none of those people were ever meant to be ends in themselves. 
They were always meant to be a lens by which we would look at the grown-up version of what God was always taking us towards. And from the creation account, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, right down to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, what you find is God was always about the same story. It was a grown-up version. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when we see David this morning, we're supposed to remember that David is a lens. He's like a 10T set. That doesn't mean he's minimized himself. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with him. But David was never meant to be the Messiah. He's a kind of Messiah. Like a 10T set, he reflects something greater, something more expensive, something more grown up. But he's never meant to be the end in and of himself. And that's what we'll see this morning. So two, two caveats before we start. This is information heavy this morning. I may not get through all of our points. If you have a study sheet, you'll see all of them. The backside is ridiculously crowded. So if we get through all of them, fine. If we don't, you can look some of those up afterwards on your way home. I also know this has not been a typical Christmas series, and this morning is not a typical Christmas message a week before Christmas. However, as we've said before, you'll never find a commandment in the New Testament in the Scriptures to remember Jesus' birth which I'm glad we do. It's all good. It's fine. I I love it. But what you do find is the repeated command, exhortation, to look forward to Jesus appearing. So, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of the Jews in Jesus' day, they're looking for Messiah's coming. That was still the deal, right? They're waiting for someone to come and save them. But we are supposed to have that kind of expectancy towards Jesus appearing, towards his second coming. And you know, for most of us, we just don't. We're so busy in the things of life, we're so involved, we're so invested, that we lose sight that someone greater, something greater is coming. And that's what we're supposed to be looking forward to. So that's where we're going this morning. Hope you have a study sheet and we will roll right along. Uh, guys, too, there's so many points, and if you don't know the stories well that we're working through, there's too many things to catch you up on. So if you go away with one or two points that are helpful for you, I'll consider that a success. Uh, last week's message was on King Saul, and we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that God had given Saul a very clear commandment that Saul had, like he did most of his life, had simply disobeyed. And out of that context, God spoke to his man, to the prophet Samuel, and he said this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Remember, God gave Israel the kind of king they wanted, and that was Saul. He said, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So, When he brings up Jesse, that takes us right back to the book of Ruth. You remember we've been pursuing the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, and we've already been in 1 Samuel a little bit. We know Jesse is from the tribe of Judah. And we know that God has promised from Genesis 49 to provide his king, his anointed one, to the nation from the tribe of Judah. Jesse lives in Bethlehem because he's from the tribe of Judah. Well, it's interesting, the story... uh, Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He's afraid, but God tells him, don't worry, um, you'll be safe. You just go and have a sacrifice, make sure Jesse and his boys get there. And so Samuel invites them, and they're a little fearful. This is the prophet. They don't know why he's come down here. They're a little fearful. But he tells Jesse, make sure all your boys come. And so there at this offering, Jesse runs his boys in front of Samuel. 
And at this point, they may not know all that's going on. But Eliab, Jesse's eldest son, comes by first. And it's funny because Samuel has the same mindset that the nation of Israel had when they got Saul. So Eliab is Jesse's first son, firstborn, and he's tall. And he's handsome and he's good looking. And Samuel says to himself, this has got to be the new king. Why? Because he looked at the outside and said, look at this guy. He looks like a king. But that's what they said about Saul. And so Samuel saying to himself, this must be the one. And God says to Samuel, this is not the one. I've rejected him. This is not the one. Do you remember famously what God tells Samuel in that setting? These are great memory verses again. He said, you're making a mistake because you're looking at the outside. Because that's what men do. We look at the outside to, to base a judgment on someone's value or worth. And he says, God says, I don't look on the outside. I look on the inside, on the heart. And we've already heard in Samuel that God is looking for a man who has a heart after God's own heart, God's own desires. Not someone who looks good on the outside, but someone who has God's heart on the inside. So seven of his sons, seven of Jesse's sons, march in front of Samuel. And none of those are the one. And God tells him. And he's like, what is the deal? Are these all your sons? And Jesse says, well, there's one more. You remember the story of Cinderella? Cinderella gets no invitation to the ball. She's back at home. And that's, that's David. He's so in, unimportant. He's so insignificant that his dad didn't even think to include him in his sons being brought here to Samuel. And so Samuel says, we're not doing anything until you bring that youngest son here. So David, they run and get him. He's with the sheep, just like Cinderella. He's back home taking care of the sheep. And he comes up. And Samuel sees him, and he says, he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. He's not big, he's not tall like his brother. Ruddy could mean red hair, it might mean suntan, might mean both. Handsome, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I think this morning in Sunday school class, we talked about the Spirit of God coming down on Jesus at his baptism. And that's what you see here. The Spirit of God came down on David from that time forward. That the oil, you remember, symbolized God's empowering by his Spirit on this guy to fulfill his role. And we know that no sooner does David get the anointing and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him than the Holy Spirit leaves King Saul. And what you see here is a, is a baton change. That God has told Samuel he's rejected Saul. David's his man. The spirit comes on David. The spirit leaves Saul. It's interesting too, and we should note, Saul's name meant asked for because he was the king that Israel asked for. David's name means beloved because he was the one that was beloved by God and chosen by God. So you've got God here replacing Israel's choice of a king with his own choice of a king. And it's not based on stature. It's based on the heart. So David starts with a bang. So this is 1 Samuel 16. And at 1 Samuel 17, you've got one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, right, of David and Goliath. Now Saul started well, too. He had an immediate military victory. And then everything went south after that. But David starts with a bang, too. And briefly, you remember Israel still fighting the Philistines, kind of ongoing battles. And, and those two armies have lined up on opposite sides of a valley, the Valley of Elah. 
And the Philistines have a, a tall guy named Goliath, and he's really tall. He's really big, over nine feet tall. You know, Saul's a tall guy, right? When we were introduced to Saul, he stands a head higher than everyone around him. He's tall. He looked like an athlete. But next to Goliath, he doesn't look so big or so strong. And so you remember, Goliath goes out every day. He stands in the, the middle, the bottom of the valley, and he, and he curses Israel and Israel's God. And he says, you guys send out your champion. We'll fight. Whoever wins that fight takes over. You guys become our servants. We become your servants. And this goes on for day after day. He's taunting Israel. He's taunting Israel's God. And no one's willing to take up the challenge. Now, David's still been shepherding, but Jesse sends him on a mission. He takes him some cheese and some food and some wine to his brothers who are in the army there and for their commanders. And as David's there, he hears this. Goliath comes out. He makes his daily taunt. And David's wondering, what is going on? And so he asks one person after another. And these guys tell him, you know what? Whoever takes this guy down, the king's going to honor him. His family will be tax-free. That was a good thing then. That's a good thing today. Tax-free for life, something like that. Well, Saul hears this young guy's been asking all these questions, so Saul calls David to him. And David says, I'm your man. I'll go out and face this guy. Now, David's not tall physically. He's not big. Saul is, and Saul doesn't go out. David's not big. He's not tall. And Saul's like, what are you thinking? You're just a youth. You're not a soldier. Do you remember what David says? He's a lowly shepherd, right? He's the youngest insignificant son. But he says... When a lion and a bear came to the sheep, I defeated the lion and the bear. I stood up for the sheep. I defeated the enemy. And this Philistine, this uncircumcised Gentile, will be just like them. David was not looking at Goliath's size, was he? It made no difference. The God who chose David didn't make his choice based on size. And when David sees the giant, his faith isn't based on the size of the opposition. His faith is based on God and God's promises and God's provision. David had, you can see right from the start, David's a man after God's own heart. He's not looking at things physically or merely physically. And so he goes out and he's rejected all Saul's armor, you remember? And it's a little shepherd boy who goes out. And it's so comical. You know, Goliath sees this guy come out and he is wondering, what in the world are you doing? He mocks David. He says, you know, you're like a little bit of cheese. I'm going to feed you to the birds. And this is David's response. And this is why we know where his heart's at. He says this. It's 1 Samuel 17:45. He says, you've come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. You've come to me with the instruments of war that you can lay your hand on. He said, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted, whom you've defied. He says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Again, David's confidence has nothing to do with his own ability. He says, God will deliver you into my hand. And when God delivers you into my hand, he says, I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. That's a pretty bold statement. You know, before the fight has begun, I'm going to cut your head off, Goliath. He said, we're going to give your dead bodies, the Philistines, to the birds of the air. And he lists two reasons here. He says, one, this is verse 46 and 47, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. You see, David wasn't in this for himself. He says, you've defied Yahweh, and Yahweh's going to give you into my hand, and he's going to do it so that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. God is exalting or glorifying himself by this little nobody, defeating someone that he should have no chance against. And he says that all this assembly may know 
that the Lord saves not with the sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. His confidence is entirely based on God, entirely not in himself. He's looking to God, the exact opposite that you saw in the life of King Saul. So the giant that everybody else is is terrified of, David goes out with a sling, and he hits him in the forehead famously, and he falls and he cuts his head off, and he achieves a great victory. And that's the beginning, right? And David simply goes from one victory to another after that. Well, when Saul sees the favor that God has poured out on David, he gets very angry and he gets very jealous because he knows he sees his replacement in action. And so we looked at this last week. Saul goes to all these attempts to kill King David. And at that point, you remember we said, you've got an anti-king, which means an anti-Christ, attempting to kill God's Messiah. An anti-Christ against God's Messiah. And of course, that comes up again in the end of the book, in Revelation and elsewhere. So Saul puts David on the run. Now remember, at this point, David is the anointed king, but he's on the run. He can't go to Jerusalem. He can't show his face in public. He doesn't. He sends his family out of the country. He takes his own family out of the country. At this point, David is a king in exile. He's officially the king, but he's not reigning from his throne. He's a king in exile, and all those who join him are joining a king in exile. So all the ones who came to David, they were not the powerful, they were not the important, they were people down and out who were willing to go live in the rough, scrubby hinterlands of Judah to be with David, a king in exile during those days. Now there's a story, and I want to bring it out because there's a particular verse. David, when he takes his men and their families to the Philistines, they're given a city called Ziklag. And this is right near the end of Saul's reign. He's killed during the same time period. But when David and his men are gone, the Amalekites come up from the south and they attack and they burn David's city. And they take all of his, they take his wives, they take his children, they take everything and everyone from that city. And they head south again. So when David and his men come back, their city is is in smoke and ruins. And actually, short term, the men want to do away with David in that, in that moment. They're blaming him for this. And the text says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Again, it's not about me or what I can do. It's about God and what he can do. So they man up and they chase the Amalekites. And they find them strung out. They're enjoying all the spoils of war that they've taken from Ziklag and other cities. And David his men go in and they attack them. And this is what the text says. This is 1 Samuel 30, verse 19. It says, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. Nothing under David's hand or responsibility was lost. He brought everyone and he brought everything back. He redeemed everyone and everything and brought them back. He didn't lose anything and no one. Well, after Saul's death, David's made king of the southern tribe of Judah, and he reigned seven years in Hebron. But Saul's descendant Ishbosheth is still reigning in the northern tribes until he is slain by some of his own men. Then David takes up the throne, ultimately in Jerusalem, and all of Israel recognizes David as the king. And it tells us that David was 30 years old. He began to reign 40 years total, seven years in Hebron, and the, the balance in Jerusalem. Now, when David went into Jerusalem, are you guys doing okay? Okay, with me? 
Uh, When David's in Jerusalem, one of the first things he does is he talks to his friend Nathan the prophet and he says, here I am in a nice city with a nice house. I've got my palace and God's ark. God's still stuck in this little tent out here. And I think God should have his own house. And back in the day, a temple was simply called a house. It was God's house. It, It was a temple because the house belonged to God. So David says, I want to build God a house, a temple. And initially, Nathan says, it's a great idea and you should do that. But God comes to Nathan and he he changes Nathan's mind. And Nathan goes back to David and he says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son Skipping a couple of verses there, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David says to God, I want to build you a house. God says, I have a better idea. I'll build you a house. And one of your physical descendants is going to sit on your throne forever. And that descendant will build me a house. If you read the story just in chronological order, Solomon comes up next. And Solomon builds the temple, doesn't he? He builds the house for God there in Jerusalem. It's spectacular. It's ornate. It's it's one of the wonders of the world. But what happens to that temple when the Babylonians come along? It's burned down. And then they build a second temple. And what happens to that one in 70 AD? That one gets destroyed by the Romans. So when God was talking to David about building a house, it wasn't Solomon's temple. Solomon and Solomon's temple were pictures of something grander, bigger, more important, something more enduring that God had in mind. So David's idea, I'll build you a house. God says, I've got a better idea. I'll build you a house. And the one who builds my house, your descendant, he will build my eternal kingdom at the same time. Promise from God to David. And guys, pause and briefly on this. Do you you ever go to God and say, God, I have a great idea? And here it is. Certainly when we pray, right? God, I have a great idea, and this is what you could do. And don't you find more often than not that God says, well, I have a better idea. Thanks for your idea. And now we'll move on to my idea. And we want to be open to that. Our best ideas usually aren't God's ideas. Maybe occasionally they are. But we hold those lightly. We submit those to God. That's what David did. And God says, I've got a better idea, which is all good for David and certainly good for us. Now, you read the rest of David's life. Guys, you know, he's the standard for the rest of the kings, isn't he? When you read through the list of kings in First and Second Kings or Chronicles, David's the high watermark because everybody's compared to David. Now, David has feet of clay too, doesn't he? Just like all of us. And so David does not end well. In fact, it's, it's rather discouraging, frankly. You know, he, he does so well for so long. But once you get to Bathsheba, friends, the rest of his life is downhill. It's tragic, right? Because... Uh, He pays dearly for his sin. And that whole element of death is introduced into his family. And you see everything just catapulting downhill after that. By the way, you see the same thing with Solomon. Solomon's only got about, of his life, he's got about eight chapters, and the end of his life is just terrible. He's absolutely a picture of Christ on one hand, but the end of his life, it just proves the point, the best of us need a Savior. And that's what you see both in David And in his son Solomon, who was a short-term picture of the promise God gave him, but not the full-fledged thing, the item.
I probably forgot. Yeah, sorry. I always forget these. So um, God's promise to David. So we know today because we're looking back. We know it was about 900 more years before that promise was fulfilled, at least in an initial sense, right? This is the Christmas season. We're remembering Jesus' birth, the incarnation, probably on our calendars about 4 BC when Herod was still ruling. Uh, But it took that long and finally... The Messiah that God had promised comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm going to do here, guys, I'm going to start running through a list of comparisons. And what I want us to think of is tin tea sets and fine china, okay? The childlike version and the full-fledged reality. So David becomes a microcosm, a child's version, as it were, of the full-fledged promise that God was going to bring about in Jesus. So one is a lens to see the other. One foreshadows the other. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about types and shadows in the Old Testament. Those were shadows, not the substance. Christ is the substance, and that's where we want to go this morning. So when Jesus comes, he's born in the city of Bethlehem. Yeah, and that's David's city, right? He's born in the same city David was born in. So he's from David's line. He's born in, Brian took us through that this morning, the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Let us know. We know Jesus' descendant, perhaps from both Mary and Joseph, of King David. He's from the royal line, so he lives in the tribe of Judah, in the town of Bethlehem. Micah 7.2 is the well-known verse that from Bethlehem, Ephrata, the Messiah would come. Now, just as King Saul attempted to kill David, Once he was aware of him as a threat to his own reign, you see the same thing going on in the life of Jesus early on. King Herod tried to kill the new king before he could grow up. You remember, Herod didn't know what was going on, but the wise men from the east, probably acting on some passages from the book of Numbers, said, hey, we know your king, your next king has been born. Where is he? We've come to worship, and Herod's a wily old guy. And he says, well, you find him and you let me know because I'll come and worship too. And, of course, they do find Jesus. They give him the gifts that were fit for royalty. They worship him, and then they leave from another way because an angel had warned them, don't go back to Herod. So what does Herod do? Herod was a terrible guy, but he was very, very shrewd. And so to try to make sure that he gets rid of that Messiah, whoever he was, you remember he kills, Matthew 2, verse 16. He has all the baby boys born in and around Bethlehem from two years and under. He has them all killed in an attempt to get rid of of his competition, the Messiah. Just as David was persecuted by Saul, Herod tried to kill the Messiah also. Now, Jesse and his other sons found no hint of a king in David. David's the eighth of eight sons. He's not the firstborn. He's not the biggest. He's the last. He's kind of the runt of the litter. So that when Jesse's supposed to bring all the sons, he doesn't even think about little David. Well, Jesus had that same kind of esteem by his family. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. In fact, if you remember that, uh, they mocked him. They jeered him. They didn't believe in him. And Isaiah 53, 2 said that the Messiah would have no physical form, that he would be found desirable. He wouldn't have looked like Eliab, David's older brother, or Saul. Physically, he wasn't imposing. He didn't look like a king. Uh, David began to reign when he was 30 years old. Uh, 30 years is an important number. 30 years was the minimum age a priest could serve in Israel. And 
David started reigning at 30, and Jesus, Luke tells us in Luke 3.23, was about 30 years old when he began his rule. Uh, David defeated his, his uh, giant, didn't he, Goliath? That was a pretty impressive feat. David defeated the giant that everyone else was afraid of. They were afraid to face. They just assumed they have no power. They have no ability to confront the giant Goliath. Uh, Jesus comes in and he defeats a type of giant, we could say certainly, but he defeats the thing that mankind had been living in fear and dread of all our lives, right? From the fall forward. In fact, if you remember the genealogies in Genesis 5, it tells you the guy's name, how long he lived, he had kids, and then it says he died. And death was the enemy, it was the giant that no one on earth could do anything about. That every one of us dies. It's a fearful, dreadful thing. I was talking to a guy a week ago, inviting him to this service, and next, next Sunday service, Christmas Eve. And I said, do you go to church? No. I said, hey, I'd love to have you as my guest, Christmas Eve service. He says, well, no, I'm not going to do that for a number of reasons. And, and anger against God was one of them. And so we're talking about the gospel and what that looks like. And, and he said, um, I'm still alive. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, all these things that have happened to me, he'd had a stroke, he'd had a number of physical calamities. And he said, none of them have killed me. And I'm thinking, okay. I said, but you're going to die. You're still going to die. You're not dead today. I get it, but you're going to die. What will you do about that? Out of mind, out of thought. I'm not going to even consider that. Death is the ultimate reality, right, for all of us. And what did Jesus do? This is a great passage from Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, speaking for Jesus, says that through death he took on our humanity in the incarnation, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The slavery was the fear of death, that enemy that I can't do anything about. 1 Corinthians 15 famously concludes with this, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Jesus has defeated the giant that every one of us faced and could do nothing about. My father uh, lost his mom when he was nine years old during the Depression, and he grew up uh, all his life afraid to die. And at the end of his life, uh, he had sudden kidney failure, and he had to go on dialysis. And so he was facing death in a very different way. He knew as soon as I get off this dialysis, I'm going to die. And we had long, good talks about death and the confidence any one of us could face in death. For the Christian, because Jesus has defeated Goliath, death, we have a whole new perspective on death, don't we? So now when we die, Paul said in Philippians 1, death is actually better because now I get to go and be with Christ. I'm free from my sinful self. I'm with Christ. It's a much better deal. No one could say that before Jesus came in the incarnation and before his death and resurrection. Sin, Satan, and death were all defeated when Jesus came in the incarnation, the Lamb of God, to take away our sins. Well, just as David faced his enemy in the name of God and for God's honor and glory, that's exactly what you see Jesus doing throughout the Gospels. Uh, Remember in John 4 when Jesus meets a gal at a well in Samaria and he tells his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I'm all about not what I want here. I'm about what my father wants. John 17, 4, Jesus says in that prayer, I glorified your name on earth, Lord. You glorify me now. I've done everything you wanted. 
Or Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 says, Old Testament quote, put in Jesus' mouth here, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written in the scroll of the book of me. So Jesus, just like David, he says, I don't have my own agenda. God, I'm on your agenda here on the earth. In 2 Samuel 8, uh, David conquers all the kingdoms around him, and they all bring tribute to him. Do you remember back then you could have multitude of kings in the same geography, but there was a high king. And the high king received the tribute from the lesser kings or kingdoms. And so when David went in and defeated his, the kingdoms surrounding Israel, they would pay David tribute because he was the high king. They owed obeisance or loyalty to him. And there's a day coming, and this has to do with the second coming, but at some point in the future when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he is going to take over all the kingdoms of the world. Revelation 11 says, I think it's verse 7, it says, The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And when King Jesus reigns from the same city David reigned from, Jerusalem, Zechariah 14 says that the nations of the world will bring tribute to David at, or to Jesus at Jerusalem. In fact, it says that if they don't send their envoys to worship and give tribute, that their nations will receive no, no rain. That Jesus will come at his second coming, he'll put all opposition down, and the nations of the earth will both worship him and pay him tribute. I don't know if this encourages you or not. Uh, David's followers, there's a passage that says that David had worthless fellows. The Old Testament called them sons of Belial, and it meant sons of worthlessness, sometimes sons of the devil. David had in his entourage uh, wicked people. And Jesus had somebody in his little tiny group, too, that was like that, didn't he? He had his Judas. David also had in his group these social outcasts. The text says people who were in debt. Uh, he attracted, he was a king in exile, but he still attracted people who were in trouble. So he didn't just have a small army. He had a, a group of social outcasts. And when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he told them something about the kind of people God had chosen for his bride, the church. And he said, God chose the foolish, the weak, the despised, the things, the people that are not, when he chose his bride. That is, just as David's followers were these social misfits and outcasts, God says that that's pretty much what the church of Jesus Christ is made up of today. That you know when Christians tend to be proud, we say it's a contradiction of terms, a proud Christian. If you follow a humble king in exile, you have nothing to be proud about. And that's the same thing for the followers of both David and of Jesus today. Uh, that passage that I read about David going down and redeeming all of the people that had been taken captive by the Amalekites, Jesus said when he prayed to the Father the night before he was crucified, he said, of those God had given him, I kept them in your name, I've guarded them, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. God, all those men that you gave me, I've kept them all in your name. I've not lost one. The guy that went south was never one of yours and never one of mine anyway. Uh, 
Um, David replaced Saul um, after Saul's death. David did not um, kill Saul. In fact, he was unwilling to put uh, his sword to Saul. Two times he could have killed Saul, and he didn't. But Saul died by the hand of the Philistines, and then David was revealed as God's chosen king. And what you're going to see with Jesus, this is at the second coming, is Jesus is going to personally put down the anti-king, anti-Christ, as he takes up his role as the given king, God's choice of king. You see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Uh, 2 Thessalonians is an overlooked little book and overlooked passages on the second coming. But Paul writes there, the lawless one that we looked at last week, he's also called the little horn, he's called a king, he's called the beast, he's called the antichrist. He'll be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That is, when the Antichrist raises himself up against God and God's anointed, Jesus returns and puts him down personally. I want to read this text a little longer than the other ones because it's one of the most exciting passages in all the Bible, Revelation 19. These are the types of passages, by the way, that we're meant to hang our hats on, that just as the Jews were thinking of the promises God made in the Old Testament for Messiah's arrival... We have prophecies, we have promises that we're supposed to be hanging our hats on, our hopes on, related to Jesus appearing and his second coming. So it says this in Revelation 19. Uh, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. You remember when Solomon rode into Jerusalem, it was on a little donkey. And you remember when Jesus rode in Jerusalem, it was on a little donkey. And that's the way kings were introduced. Uh, they came on donkey as kings of peace. But when a king was on a horse, it was a time for warfare. And John sees not a donkey in heaven. He sees a war horse, a charger. He says, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and right in righteousness. He judges and makes war. So this is not the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the lion from the tribe of Judah who's coming down to put down all rebellion. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. His head are many crowns, many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. You know, a name represents a person. If a person has a name that you don't know, it means that you are unable to comprehend who and what they are. Because Jesus isn't just the descendant of David, but he's God in the flesh, his name is not knowable to you and I. Not in that sense anyway. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. You, you know, do you guys ever, you know, especially around Christmas when Jesus is reduced to the ever infant Jesus, meek and mild? And this is not Jesus, meek and mild. And when people have a concept of Jesus or God, they sometimes keep it reduced to the baby in the manger. And you say, well, it was good that he came and he put on our flesh and he was born of the virgin and all that was great. We needed that to happen. We needed Jesus to come as the lamb to die for our sins. But Jesus is not a lamb anymore. Not in this role. He's a lion and he's coming back. And he's taking names. And he's bloody. And when people talk about God would not send anyone to hell. Or Jesus loves everyone the same. You say, well, God did send Jesus. And Jesus does love us. And Jesus will love you forever. But if you reject Jesus, you get him as your king. And he's coming back and he's a bloody Warlord, He is a king who will brook no resistance whatsoever. He's called the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. And this 
you know, the stuff that they could make movies of, this is right here, right? If you want to make a three, what do we call it, computer-generated movie, what would it look like for Jesus on a horse that you'd see coming down through the heavens with an army behind him, probably too numerous to count, all on white horses. You just see them coming down through the skies. Would that be wild? Unimaginable. That's what we're waiting for. He has a sharp sword, his word, to strike down the nations. He rules them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Guys, I knew I'd run way short on time, which I've already done. So, let me get down to uh, briefly. I think this is the last one on your sheet. Uh, King David ruled uh, people from Jerusalem, and King Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem, not just in the thousand-year millennial reign, but the new Jerusalem for the new heaven and the new earth is where Jesus rules forever. And you see this in Revelation 21. Saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away. The sea's gone. I see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And there's a voice saying, The dwelling place of God is with man. He dwells with them. They're his people. God's with them. He's their God. He wipes away every tear. From every eye, death is no more. There's no crying. There's no pain. The former things have passed away. And do you remember at this point in the story, if you go from Genesis, you've got a man and his wife in a garden. And all is good, briefly at least. And at Revelation 22, what do you have? You have a man and his wife in a garden. You have Jesus and his bride in a garden that's not Eden now. It's the new Jerusalem. It's enlarged. It's bigger, but it's the same thing only writ large. So it's Christmas, and we're anticipating, we're thinking about the incarnation, which is great. As you do, though, as we think about Jesus' first coming, it should lead us to think about his second coming. And guys, all our hopes are meant to be on his appearing. The Christians are supposed to live every day with the thought that Jesus might come today. Jesus could call me today. The church could be gone today, that we're meant to live with that expectation, like a bride waiting for the groom to show up. So as we wind down this series, just ask yourself a few questions related to anticipation and what's to come. Are we anticipating our reunion with our Savior? That's the next thing on God's list. The next thing coming is Jesus calling us to be with himself. Are we anticipating that? Are we waiting for our King By the way, we do serve a king. Jesus is our savior. We emphasize that. We're good with that. But he is also our king. We owe him our obedience. Have we submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, King Jesus? We highlight Jesus as our savior. That's the first thing. That's preeminent. We have to know that our sins are forgiven. But Jesus is both our savior and our king. And we've come to that point where we simply know, guys, it doesn't matter where I've been, what I've done background good, bad, or ugly. My family's Christian. They're atheists. They're from here. They're from elsewhere. None of that matters. The only thing matters is what have I done with Jesus' offer of eternal life? Have I accepted that salvation in Christ? We are serving a rejected Messiah today, a king in exile. 
And are we serving that king in exile today? One of the things that you'll see, David goes from exile to glory, and the people that were with him in exile are blessed, they're honored, when he comes in his glory, into his kingship. When you serve Jesus in his exile today, there's glory and there's reward to come. And whatever we do, in Jesus' name or for God's cause, until then, it will be more than worth it when we see Christ when God the Father says, well done, good and faithful servant, when we enter into the joy of our master. So as we're thinking about Christmas, the incarnation's great, necessary, the Lamb of God, but we're looking for the lion from the tribe of Judah to come and to restore all things to himself. (laughs) Father, thanks for a great time in the year to remember all that you've done for us in Christ. Would you help us lift up our hearts in exaltation to all that you've done? Would you help us to set our hopes firmly and solely and ultimately on Jesus appearing in our presence with him forever. Amen.